uh, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We will be in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. 1. 1 through 11. Could you stand for the reading of God's word? Therefore, since we have, ju- we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have, been, uh, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have, been, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and, and for the way that it reveals who you are to us. I pray tonight as we look through this text that we would uh, learn to better understand who you are and what salvation and justification means for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, how are we doing, guys? Good? Glad the sun was out today? What? What? I said, are you glad the sun was out today? School, yeah, no school, no, there is school, there is school. You think so? Chase, can you grab me a microphone? Oh, whatever, he's already there. Okay, I just want to start, so last week, uh, as many of you may know, some of you probably don't know, I was at a conference, it was a pastor's conference, and every time I go to these pastor's conferences, or I'm talking with other youth pastors about their groups and everything. I'm just reminded of how great of a group you guys are. I just wanted to let you guys know how much I love being your youth pastor, and I'm sure these leaders love being uh, your guys' leaders. So I don't say it enough, but I really do love you guys. So enough sappy stuff. Give me a microphone. (laughs) No, I didn't. Okay, listen up. So we, this week, we are expanding upon justification and what that looks like for us as believers. What we see Paul do in this passage is he he has established justification by faith, right? He looked at Abraham, he looked at the life of Abraham, and how he was justified by his faith, not by his works. Chase talked about that last week. This week, since Paul has established that For those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, 
We have been justified, and through that justification comes many blessings and many benefits. So Paul will, will talk through this, and we really see this come out in, um, in three points. So the first is we see that our hope is anchored, then our hope is practiced, and our hope is fulfilled. So let's look at fir- and see first what our hope is anchored in. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and it starts with a therefore. What do you guys do when there's a therefore? Anyone? You look back because you, this is a kind of a cheesy way to say it, but you ask yourself, what is that therefore? Therefore. 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 There you go. So every time you see a therefore, a for, a because, a since, look back and see what he's talking about, what the writer of scripture is referring to, because that gives you the context for what's happening. So it says, therefore, so we look back and we see that it's referring to justification by faith alone, meaning that, well, actually, let me ask you guys, what does justification by faith alone mean? Anyone? Grayson. We have right standing with God through our faith in Christ Jesus. That's what justification by faith alone, we, in God's eyes, we are seen as righteous even though we are sinners. Even though we have rejected God, we have now put our faith in Jesus and we have been given a new heart that can now seek to please God and we are seen as righteous in the eyes of God. So we are justified by our faith that we have been given, it's not our works, but it's the works of Christ that saves us, right? It's nothing that we can do. I can't read my Bible enough to overcome the penalty of sin. I can't serve in the church enough to be seen as righteous in the eyes of God. There was nothing we could have, could have done to be justified. Look back at Romans 4, starting in verse 20. He's talking about Abraham, and it says, No unbelief has made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, and as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what faith is. We are fully convinced that God is going to do what he has promised he will do. Meaning that we are fully convinced that because we've put our faith in Jesus— Come judgment day, God will see us as righteous and we will not face punishment for our sins because of what Jesus has done. That is why, verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This was written, all about Abraham was written, acknowledged, included in scripture for our sake, that we would know what justifies. That the father of Israel, God's people, and then eventually seen as the father of faith, or really immediately seen as the father of faith, from the start, it was his faith that caused, it, caused God to count to him righteousness. If we are believing in God, trusting that he will do what he says he's going to do. Trusting that he will save us. We are believing that God is faithful to his word. So all of that 
is packed into therefore. You see why you look back when you see therefore? We'll continue. So it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, he's talking about believers, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first benefit of our justification, that we have peace with God. If you are a believer, you have peace with God, with the eternal, righteous, holy, merciful, and just God through your faith. That Exodus 34, 6 to 7 says it exactly. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He is merciful, he is loving, and he, he, is, he is the one who oversees our status, keeping steadfast love for thousands, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What that verse is saying, this is God himself saying to Moses who he is. What that ver- or those verses are saying is that God is both merciful and loving to those who trust him. But to those who reject him, he will punish sin. He will punish the iniquity of, of our sin. And this yet again shows us that God is not just all love as, as the world would want you to believe. That God is, his love outweighs his wrath so everyone will be saved. That's not biblical. That is not in the Bible. And we've already seen that in Romans. And we're just hitting chapter 5. God is not all love. He is also just and righteous meaning that he cannot overlook sin. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a punishment because when we sin, we are rejecting God. We are saying, God, what you have is not good enough. I don't believe in you. I don't trust in you. And I'm going to do it my own way. We, are, we have rejected him. Every single one of us rejected God. That's what we spent Romans 1 all the way through 3 talking about, right? Especially Romans 1. Actually, Romans 1, 2, all of it. All of it we spent talking about our sinfulness. But if we have peace with God now, what does that mean for us before we are saved? What if we, what if we had never professed faith in Christ? That means that we were not at peace with God. Ephesians 2, 1 to 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were enemies with God. That's what Romans 5, 8 to 9 says. Colossians 1, 21 says that we were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We were hostile towards God. And if you aren't a believer, that's where you're at right now. And God's wrath comes for sinners and his enemies. Psalm 21, 8 to 12 says, Your hand, talking about God, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to, uh, to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. 
That's, that might sound harsh, and it, I mean, it does because it is. Sin is not anything to be trifled with. God is not someone to be trifled with. If you don't stand in righteousness before God, that's what's coming for you. Sure, it might seem like it's a long way off, but you don't know how many, how many days you have. That's why scripture tells us to keep, to teach us to number our days. Understand where you stand before God and what is coming for you. God's wrath is coming for those who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, who have twisted what God said and are ignoring his existence. Those who hear the gospel and yet are rejecting it. He comes, it's coming for those who do not believe because they rejected God. And that's why we need Christ. Because we are born into sin. Because we are born into iniquity. And without Christ, that's where we stand. We stand as enemies of God. Facing a punishment for our sins. But through faith in Jesus Christ, we are able to be saved. We are able to have peace with God, a permanent peace, that is the, and that's the first benefit of our justification, that when we stand before God, we will be in awe of his holiness and his righteousness, and he will look at us and see us as righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. So that's the first benefit of our justification, and that's permanent peace with God. And then the second is found in verse 2. It says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So first we have peace with God, and then the second thing is just as incredible. It is just as wonderful. It's that we have full access to God. By our faith we have access to God. And real quick, I want to look at the history of what the access humanity has had to God. Before the fall, there was unlimited access. This is Genesis 1 to 2. Unlimited access to God in the garden between Adam and Eve and God. God walked with them. But then we know that they sinned against God and were cast out of the garden. And that's, that brings us to post-fall. After the fall, there was no access to God. There wasn't, there wasn't a tabernacle, a temple. There wasn't anything. The garden was protected by a cherubim, which is basically uh, an angel with a flaming sword that's a protector of holy things. And then we get to Sinai, which we're studying or really walking through uh, Exodus and main service. We get to Sinai where only Moses was granted access to God. Anyone else that touched the mountain was to be executed because they're disobeying God. But Moses sees God face to face as a friend and then God gives the law and really the first access that man has to God in the tabernacle. And that's only, he's only accessed in the Holy of Holies behind walls and curtains and priests. And there's limited access at best. But then under the new covenant, after the resurrection, we have full access to God. Turn to Hebrews 12. Uh, 22 to 24. 
Hebrews 12, verse 22. Oh, that's 11. But you have come to Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That, what those verses are saying is that we can now go to God. In faith, we can go to God because Jesus is our mediator. He's the one who's standing in between us and God. And we can, our prayers are heard by God. We can fully know that our prayers are heard by God. There's no human high priest that we see sinning throughout every day of the week. And then he's supposed to go between us and God. No, Jesus, the perfect, righteous Savior, stands between us and God as our mediator, giving us access to God. We no longer have to come to an earthquake-prone, thunder-and-lightning-covered mountain hidden in clouds to see God. We don't have to go past a cherubim with a flaming sword. We don't, we don't, have, to go, we don't have to trust that Moses or any sinners are bringing our prayers to God. No, we, through Christ, have direct access to God, and it's only through Christ that we have that. Unbelievers do not have direct access to God. The Bible is clear that... The prayers of the unbelievers are not heard like, they're, like the prayers of, of God's children. They're not heard like the prayers of God's people. So when we pray as believers, we can know that we have obtained this grace to stand before God and pray to him. Our justification gives us access to God. And that doesn't mean that we, when I say we go boldly, I'm not saying arrogantly or flippantly. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says, Many speak flippantly about their, their relation to, uh, to Christ or to God as that of a pal or a peer. I'm sure you guys have heard of Jesus as my homeboy. Uh, Many speak flippantly about their relationship to Christ or to God as that of a pal or a peer. But if Jesus Christ walked into our presence everyone would, would be on his face in a posture of submission and adoration, overwhelmed by Christ's glory. I mean, we see this happen in, in the Old and New Testaments. Moses has to hide behind a rock when God reveals himself to him. When Isaiah is in the throne room of God in a vision, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. When John, one of the apostles, someone who walked with Jesus, when he, in Revelation, when it describes John seeing Jesus return, what does John do? He falls down as if he were dead. We can't be talking flippantly or going arrogantly before God, but we can go boldly. We can go confidently that we won't be struck down because of what Christ has done for us. And that leads us to rejoicing, as Paul says in verse 2, it says that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That leads us to rejoicing because we now know that we have a certain hope. When we talk about hope in our earthly world, like I hope the Lakers win this game, there's a level of uncertainty there, right? Yeah, because the Lakers lose to terrible teams. But there's a level of uncertainty because we don't actually know what's going to happen. 
However, in the Bible, hope is a certainty. It is sure. It is something that we claim. And this hope is the anchor of our soul. That amidst trials and tribulations, we look to Christ as our anchor. As the one that we cling to amidst the storm. And we can do so because our hope is a certainty. That we're no longer dead, but we are alive. And as Christians, that, that's what we must do. Junior hires and high schoolers, you have, you have your whole lives ahead of you. Many of you have suffered trials and tribulation, but hold to Christ as your anchor. Learn to cling to him even in the small trials, even when your homework seems overwhelming because you're balancing your work and your school and your family life, even when, even when you don't understand what's going on, even when your friendships seem to be fading away. In the little things, learn to anchor yourself to Christ. So that when the big storms come, when, when loved ones have, get a, a diagnosis that no one wants to hear, when you're moving away from your family, learn to cling to Christ. Don't waver because you have an assurance, a certainty. Now, unbelievers, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, see the weakness of what you've put your faith in. Read through Ecclesiastes. See how quickly everything just fade, quickly fades away. I mean, this week there was like four huge banks that failed. If you don't know about it, I'm, I'm not surprised. I wouldn't have known this, this in high school. But there's four massive banks that failed. There's uncertainty in this world. Money is uncertainty. Our jobs are uncertain. Our relationships are uncertain. Put your faith in Jesus as the only one that we can fully trust in. Anchor your faith to Christ. That brings us to the next point, hope practiced. Now, before you start thinking that this hope for salvation is only in the future, only on judgment day, Paul steps in and shows us just how relevant it is in our day-to-day. -day. Verse 3, it says, Not only that, not only do we have this future hope, but because of our anchor, we rejoice in our sufferings. And that's the third benefit, that our, our sufferings are not pointless. They are not purposeless. But in Christ, we can see, we can be confident that there is a purpose in suffering. And this rejoicing in our sufferings hinges on, on putting our faith in Christ. If we're putting our faith in ourselves, then our, then our foundation is weak. There is no anchor to hold on to. We are able to rejoice in our sufferings because of who we are anchored to. Paul is not saying that we seek out our sufferings, not, not looking for trials and tribulations, but when they come our way, we can look at them and rejoice because we know that there is a benefit. Many of you have probably heard James chapter 1, and this passage is similar. It says... Um, where are we? Verse 3. It says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces. And I'll stop there. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that out, out of suffering, there are things that are produced in us. So it produces endurance. You can almost think of suffering like exercise. That, that pain produces something on the other side. I heard someone 
uh, talking about exercise and saying that that the pain you're feeling when you're when you're exercising it, you're essentially pushing yourself that so that fatigue doesn't come as quickly. So you're producing endurance in yourself. R.C. Sproul says that tribulations put uh, tribulation puts muscle on our soul. That we have endurance because we have been through trials and tribulation. And the more we experience them, the more we can trust in Christ. And the longer we can suffer and the better we get at suffering. Not so it's easier for us, but so that we can glorify God and, and lift him up and exalt him. That's why we've, this is a, a benefit of, of having the leaders that we do. We have, in terms of looking at other youth groups, our leaders are far more mature believers. When I was in high school, some of our youth group leaders were like 20 years old. They were seniors when I was sophomores. I'm not saying our leaders are old, but they're mature. <laughs> they're mature believers that have been through it. They know sufferings. They know trials. They... They have muscle on their souls. So when you guys are going through sufferings, even if it seems small in comparison to what they've gone through, it might be big to you, and I would encourage you to talk to them about it. Talk to me about it. Talk to my wife about it. God has given us mature believers so that we can grow and be encouraged in the faith. They are ahead of us so that they can bring us along. So suffering produces care or endurance, and this endurance produces character. As we suffer, we learn to endure, and as we endure, we grow in Christ-likeness. That's what this character is talking about. It's not so that other people might see you and think that you have good character and integrity. That's a benefit. But suffering makes us more like Jesus. In Philippians 3, 10 to 11, it says, um, Paul's talking about suffering, and he says, that he wants to suffer, essentially, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share, it, share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's saying that, that he rejoices in suffering because his suffering makes him more like Jesus, because Jesus also suffered. We have a Savior who gets it, who understands what, it's, what life is like on earth. He understands, I mean, scripture, the gospel shows that he was hungry, he was tired, or, I mean, he was so exhausted that he was asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm. He understands what life is like. He understands friends rejecting him. He understands losing loved ones. At one point it says that Jesus even wept. So he gets it. He understands us. We also have other examples like Job. Job who suffered far more, I feel like I can confidently say this, but Job suffered far more than any of us have. He lost his entire family. His wife told him to curse God and die. He suffered, he lost all of his wealth, his business. He suffered far more than any of us have. And yet in the midst of his suffering, he says this, he says, when he, God, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold seeing that suffering produces character in us. And then in verse 4, it continues and says, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As character is produced, we are more aware of how strong of an anchor Jesus Christ is. 
meaning that in us, hope is produced, meaning that in us, we no longer have shame. And this is how suffering produces hope, because we're no longer put to shame, but see that our final resting place isn't in this life. That we know that the things of this world are not things to hold on to, that yes, we can enjoy them, but they aren't things to be grasped because our hope is in the future. Our hope is in the presence of God, and this is a certainty because God has poured out his love for us in the Holy Spirit, that we are shaped into Christ-likeness as we grow in faith and as we suffer. Essentially, when we suffer, we are putting our hope into practice. And we see this love of God expanded upon. It says, verse 6, For while we were still weak, this is similar to Ephesians 2, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Remember, when we see a 4, we look back, and it's easy because we've just been talking about it forever, but we see a 4, we look back, and we see because of everything that we have gained through Christ, we are, we are reminded of where we were. For while we were still weak at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. At the right time, Jesus' death on the cross was the God-appointed perfect time for the atonement. Any other types of phrasing would imply that God's timing is not the right timing, but there is a time for everything. And God planned it all perfectly. God's timing is perfect. Thus, the timing of the cross is perfect. And then it says that Jesus died for the ungodly. He'll say something similar at the end of this, this uh, passage. But the ungodly, Paul is specifically referring to Christians, to the elect, to believers that are chosen by God before the foundations of the earth. And we'll spend more time discussing who Jesus specifically died for next week. So hang tight. I know some of you might not know about this, but this is a controversial uh, issue. And I know that it could make you upset. And I get it. The, the doctrine of limited atonement is a sticky one. But I promise if you hang with us, if you hang with us through Romans, it's not the stereotype of this teaching that you've heard. So don't, don't not come back next week because you're offended by these teachings, but come back seeking to learn more about them and ask us questions. I want to answer questions. So next week we will uh, start to dip our toe into election and limited atonement, but don't let those uh, keep you from coming back. Come back next week, talk to me, talk to your leaders, and don't just disappear into the vast Ashby wilderness. All right, back to this verse, or this passage, verse 7. So he's talking about Jesus dying for us, and he says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though per perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't when we started to do something good. It wasn't when we started to do something right. No, Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. I mean, he died for his disciples while they were running from, from the persecution he was getting. He died for his disciples while Peter was denying him three times to, a, to random people he didn't know. 
Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. He died for godless people, knowing that they would come to him. This explicitly shows us the love of God because, I mean, we wouldn't die for a, a good person or a righteous person. That's a tall order. And yet Jesus died for those who were rejecting him. And this is the hope that our, this is the love that our hope is anchored in. That even when we were rejecters of God, he still loved us enough to send his son to the cross. So we should be looking, all this to say, we should be looking at suffering with joyful expectation. Even the suffering that seems minor in comparison to the grand scheme of things, look at it with joyful expectation. Look at it for what it might produce in you. Sure, you might not know the specifics, but you know that it produces uh, endurance, character, and hope. So next time you're, you're facing a trial, take your thoughts captive. Don't, don't complain about how overwhelmed you are. Don't complain to your parents. Don't, don't cry out needlessly. Take your thoughts captive. Look ahead and see what it might produce in you. Go through the trial with a joyful expectation. Yes, it can still be hard. Yes, tears can still be shed. But go through it knowing what God has promised you. One way to help with this is to even ask your leaders about what trials they've gone through and what's produced for them, what, how they look back on the trials of their lives and see how they have grown. So that's hope practice, and it's practiced through suffering. And then Paul closes this passage out with the fulfillment of our hope. Verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more, will, will, um, geez, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is the fulfillment of our justification, salvation from the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is real, like I've said, regardless of what other false teachers say. And this is why we need peace, because God's wrath comes for sinners. I'll read again Exodus 34, 6-7. I know we've spent a bunch of time on this, but I want you to hear the character of God. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Sin deserves punishment. Otherwise, there would be no need for salvation. If God didn't punish sin, then Christ went to the cross for no reason. We are saved from something, and that something is God's right and just wrath against sin. But we also, in our salvation, we don't just see God's wrath, but we see his grace and his mercy. Verse 10, for, for if uh, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Even while we were enemies, rejectors of, and hostile toward God, he sent Jesus to the cross. He sent his son to die on our behalf. While we were hostile, 
God sought out reconciliation with us and he brought it about. He is the one who orchestrated it all. And he has made it clear that those of us who are saved or to those of us that are saved, he has made it clear that we can look confidently come judgment day and know that we will not be punished for our sins. This salvation is our certain hope. It is our anchor, and it doesn't bring us to shame. In fact, it brings us into joy. We trust in our hope in the midst of trial and suffering, and with it, we can look forward to our future salvation. And all of it is for the glory of God. Not for our, our own glory, but for his glory. With all this in mind, we rejoice in Christ. We worship God, and we stand in awe and wonder of everything that he has done for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for the certainty and the hope that we have in you. I pray that, that as we discuss our salvation, that, that it would only strengthen our hope, that we would seek to learn more about you and, and everything that you have done for us. Thank you for who you are and for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.